If you are new with us this morning or visiting with us, we are really right in the midst of our study through the book of Nehemiah. And what we're seeing in this book of Nehemiah is really the character of God. We're seeing the character of God on display through Nehemiah, right? The fact that God wants to restore, wants to restore the city and rebuild the city for the sake of his people, right? We see that, that God is in this business of restoration, of, of rebuilding, of revitalization. And, and we'll sort of land our plane here this morning, but I do want to point out uh, much of what we're talking about in Nehemiah is in relation to the church. Uh, but, but it shouldn't fall deaf on our ears, the fact that Nehemiah is very applicable to us in our personal lives. Uh, right At one time, we were all in need of restoration, right? Uh, at one time, we uh, hopefully all come to the point where we realize, hey, things just are not right, right? Things, my life is in shambles, I am broken. And of course, Nehemiah points us to the gospel in that uh, the only way we find restoration from our brokenness is in Christ. And so we'll talk about that more uh, as we sort of land the plane this morning. Uh, but there's, this per- there's that level of personal application in Nehemiah. But there's also this uh, very... Uh, there's also this other very practical aspect of application in Nehemiah. Yes, when it comes to the church, but even now as today is Father's Day and maybe we're thinking about uh, fathers, we're thinking about men and their roles in the home or in the church, it's very applicable for leadership, right? Not just for men in the home or or, uh, for people in the church, but uh, even just very practical leadership uh, for uh, you in, in your regular walk of life, right? Maybe you're in a leader position, uh, position at work. And so uh, Nehemiah just applies to all of these different phases of life. Of course, this isn't unique to the book of Nehemiah. All of Scripture applies to all different phases of life. But I don't want you uh, to be narrow-sighted as we approach uh, this, this book, and especially this morning. Uh, but if, uh, like I say, if you're new with us, we've been studying through this book. We come to Nehemiah chapter 5. If you're new to the book of Nehemiah, or if you haven't been with us up to this point, or it's been a couple weeks since I've been here, and so uh, you've slept since then and you forgot, Uh, let me just update you on where we're at here in the book of Nehemiah. We're actually at the very end of Old Testament history. Right? We're, we're about 400 years or so at this point uh, from uh, the institution of the new covenant, right? from Christ coming, from uh, the gospel really taking shape. So we're about 400 years before that, before the birth of Christ, at the end of Old Testament history. Of course, we started this book back in chapter 1. Nehemiah is an Israelite. That's God's chosen people. It's the people that we follow throughout the Old Testament as we see God bringing His plan to pass. Right? It's through this people, through this uh, peculiar people, if you will, this people that He's called out that He'll one day bring the Messiah, that He'll one day bring His promised Son. So we're sort of following their story here. And Nehemiah learns in chapter 1 that God's city, his, uh, the nation of Israel, their city, Jerusalem, has been destroyed. Right? <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, the walls are in shambles. They've been totally torn down. And really, Nehemiah chapter 1 is about Nehemiah's prayer, about how he begins praying about this dilemma, how he begins praying about this problem. And he spends all of chapter 1 praying and, and going before God. And then as we get into chapter 2, <coughs> excuse me, we see that after about uh, four months, He finally gets up the courage to go to the king. Now, we learned at the beginning of chapter 1 that uh, Nehemiah is uh, the right hand to the king, to the Persian king. He's the cupbearer, and so uh, he's he's one of the most trusted, if not the most trusted advisor of, uh, of the king. And so he finally gets up the courage to go before the king. He talks about his city being in ruin. And the king not only agrees to let Nehemiah go and rebuild the city, but he agrees to, to, to pay for the entire thing. <clears throat> and so as, as Nehemiah is, is laying out this plan, as he's proceeding with this plan, we get to chapter 3. We see that the work has begun. They're actually making really incredible progress. Then chapter 4 begins, and uh, we start talking about this recurring theme, if you will, <coughs> excuse me, in the book of Nehemiah, and that's this theme of opposition. We're going to see this on several occasions. We looked at external opposition in chapter 4. When we get to chapter 6 next week, we're going to see external opposition. It's really focused on uh, 
Nehemiah in particular as a leader. But this week we're in chapter 5. And in chapter 5, we see that the, the, the opposition is not from the outside. Rather, it is from the inside. Thank you. She, she, sees the, uh, she sees that the Lord's, maybe not the Lord is getting me choked up this morning. Maybe I'm too excited about what we have and I'm just, I'm just getting choked up. But we see that what's happening here <coughs> is that uh, Nehemiah is dealing with this opposition from the inside. It's not the mocking. It's not the ridiculing. It's not uh, the threat of attack from the outside. It's this opposition coming from the inside. And so Nehemiah in chapter 4, he's already strengthened the people against this opposition from the outside. But something we talked about in chapter 4 is the outside opposition, outside pressure um, exemplifies, it, it increases these, these problems on the inside. And that's really what's coming to the surface here in chapter 5. So I invite you to join with me reading Nehemiah chapter 5. Now, I had originally planned to handle this whole chapter this morning, but because of time, both this week and next week, I want to be good stewards. I want to make sure that we're not rushing through this. We're actually just going to take the first 13 verses of Nehemiah chapter 5. And so uh, if you're following along in the outline in your love notes, we'll be taking those first two points this morning. But Nehemiah chapter 5, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. And there was a great cry of the people and of their wives against their brethren the Jews. For, they, for there were there that said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, take up corn for them that we may eat and live. Some also there were that said, We have mortgaged our lands, vineyards, and houses, that we might buy corn because of the dearth. There were also that said, We have borrowed money for the king's tribute, and that upon our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren. Our children is their children. And lo, we bring into bondage our sons and our daughters to be servants. And some of our daughters are brought into bondage already. Neither is it in our power to redeem them. For other men have our lands and our vineyards. Verse 6. And I was very angry when I heard them cry in these words. When I heard their cry in these words. Then I consulted with myself. And I rebuked the nobles and the rulers and said unto them, You exact usury, even one of his brother. And I set a great assembly against them. And I said unto them, We, after our ability, have redeemed our brethren, the Jews, which were sold unto the heathen. And will ye even sell your brethren? Or shall they be sold unto us? Then held they their peace and found nothing to answer. Also I said, It is not good that ye do ought ye not to walk in the fear of our God. Because of the reproach of the heathen, our enemies. Verse 10, I likewise and my brethren and my servants might exact of them money and corn. I pray you, let us leave off this usury. Verse 11, restore, I pray you, to them, even this day, their lands and their vineyards and their olive yards and their houses. Also, the hundredth part of money and of the corn and wine and the oil. And ye exact of them. Then said they, we will restore them and will require nothing of them, so we will do as thou sayest. Then I called the priest and took an oath of them that they should do according to this promise. Also I shook my lap and said, So God shake out every man from his house and from his honor that performeth not this promise. Even thus be shaken out and emptied. And all the congregation said, Amen, and praised the Lord, and the people did according to this promise. Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful this morning for Your Word. We believe above all else, Lord, that Your Word is completely true, that Your Word is completely profitable for all that we need, that in Your Word we see the perfect image of Your Son Jesus, that in Your Word we find hope for every broken situation. In Your Word and in Your Word alone we find salvation. And so, Lord, as we study this Word this morning, would You convict us of the dark areas of sin in our life? Would You challenge us to be a people after Your own heart? To be a people that resemble the work of Nehemiah for the good of all people and for the glory of Your name? Lord, would You unify us this morning around Your Word? 
that we might be unified in our desire to see your mission accomplished to the ends of this earth. And so, Lord, build us up, restore us, revitalize us, that we might be a people that live on mission for your glory above all else. And we ask this in the precious name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Now, as you see, when we, as we begin reading this chapter, the internal problems that the nation of Israel is facing, that the Jews are facing, is particularly related to the rich oppressing the poor. Now, here's the big idea that I want you to see uh, in this text this morning and even bleeding over into next week a little bit. It's this, Nehemiah preserves the unity of the people and the continuation of the mission by leading with justice and generosity. He leads with justice and with generosity. I want us to make sure we're very clear in seeing that uh, this morning and again even into next week. I mean, I, we can't miss how important this is. Look, Nehemiah wants to maintain unity. Why does Nehemiah want to maintain unity? Because Nehemiah is a good leader. Right? Any good leader wants to maintain unity. You're a really bad leader if you want to sow disunity. Right? And so Nehemiah is a good leader. He wants to maintain unity. But we have to be very, very clear here. This isn't just about avoiding a disunity for the sake of avoiding disunity or maintaining unity for the sake of unity. We have to be very, very clear for just a moment. It's not just unity for unity's sake. Nehemiah, hear me out, wants to maintain unity for the sake of the mission. Let me say that again. Nehemiah wants to maintain unity for the sake of the mission. My, one of my primary concerns is the unity of Locust Grove Baptist Church. Not just so that we'll all get along. It's really good if we all get along. My primary concern of our unity is that if we are unified in the Lord, we will be unified in the mission that He has given us. And if we can't be unified in that, then we don't need to be unified at all. Right? We see Nehemiah talking about that, about shaking out those who are not unified around this mission. So it's not just unity for unity's sake. Now the mission for Nehemiah is rebuilding the wall, but we've already seen in the book of Nehemiah, it's about more than just a wall, isn't it? It's about the glory of God. It's about the establishment of God's purposes in the world. And so the way Nehemiah preserves the unity and advances the mission is by executing justice. He's executing justice here in chapter 5, very particularly on behalf of the poor. And then we'll see, even more so next week, a little bit this week, but even more so next week, by his own example of generosity. So we should take a note here, very practically. There is a line that is drawn... Listen to me, between being a pacifist for the sake of unity and being a leader who unifies people around the mission of God. Let me just say it very frankly. There's a difference in sticking a pacifier in someone's mouth and uniting someone around the mission. You are not a good leader if your primary concern is pacifying someone who's going to have something negative to say. That's not a good leader. Right? It's not just keeping the peace for the sake of keeping peace. When you're a good leader is when you address the mission of God and you say, here is the mission, here's what we're going to unify around, here's what we're going to do. If you're not unified around this, you're in the wrong. I want to help you. We're going to see Nehemiah do an excellent job of helping people see when they're not unified around the mission, when they're unified around their own things, which is their own personal gain. Right, And so... A good leader isn't someone who just, who just makes a decision in order to pacify somebody. Here's what good leaders do. They hold those who need a pacifier accountable. Listen, I know this is direct. I know it's frank. But it's the Word of God. It's the example established by Nehemiah. It's exactly what he is doing. He's not. St it would have been so easy... Again, we're not talking about like the crooks that are a problem here. I mean, they are crooks, but we're not talking about like murderers, insurrectionists. We're talking about the noble and the rich. How easy would it have been for Nehemiah to say, hey, man, these are important players here. These guys have a lot of money. They have a lot of influence. I just got to keep them happy. So I'm just going to let them keep on taking advantage of the poor because, I mean, really, I mean, the poor have to do what they're doing. They don't have any choice. 
Now apply this to your own life, to your own home, to your own work, to your own church. And think about how tempting it is just to pacify people. Can I just be very frank? In order to get them to hush. Nehemiah doesn't do that. Nehemiah gets to the root of the problem. He addresses the problem. He holds those who were accountable for creating the problem to the justice of God's Word, which we'll see in just a minute. So the first half of this chapter, we see the justice piece of Nehemiah's leadership. Then the second half, we'll see uh, uh, the, the display of gospel generosity that provides an example to the nation on how to accomplish this mission that's been set before them together. In fact, if, if we, since we're not going to get there this morning, I want us to look at the very end of chapter 5, verse 19. And I think, I think this is very important. Of course, we'll, we'll end up finishing here next week, but I want us to look at this just very, very briefly. And keep in mind as we're reading this, the book of Nehemiah is sort of like Nehemiah's journal entries. Um, it's his memoirs, if you will. And, and look at the thing here that's really motivating Nehemiah. Look at verse 19, Nehemiah chapter 5. Think upon me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Again, what you see in verse 9 is really this summation of Nehemiah's motivation. And it serves as an important reminder and instruction for us and what our motivation ought to be. Simply put, it's this. The good of people and the glory of God. It's not the first time we've seen this in Nehemiah where he's just summarizing it again in this prayer. Nehemiah's concern is the good of people and the glory of God. And so church, I say to you this morning, Christian, I say to you this morning, Father, I say to you this morning, our motivation ought to be for the good of people and the glory of God. Don't take one and leave the other. If you're doing something for the glory of God, I promise you it will ultimately be for the good of people. But here's where we, here's where we find error. We convince ourselves that we're doing things that are good for people when really it's only good for us and it has nothing to do with the glory of God. And so if you drop the glory of God filter off of everything that you do, if you're not running it through that filter, you may have convinced yourself that what you're doing is good for people, but it's probably just good for you. Or it may actually be to their demise, right? Even this issue of accountability and justice. It's better for me to just pacify someone than hold someone accountable. That's not good for people. And that's certainly not for the glory of God. And so, very simply, our motivation ought to be for the good of people and the glory of God. We're going to get into this even more. But let's look at the first half of this passage and see how Nehemiah executes this biblical justice. Now you notice I keep using this term. Biblical justice. Because Nehemiah, listen to me, he's not, just, uh, he's not just executing justice according to his ideas or his policies that he has arbitrarily created in his mind. What he's doing is actually drawing off of the Old Testament law because the people are disobeying the law. And so guess what he's going to do? He's going to do something really radical. He's just going to apply the Scriptures to the problem. Crazy idea, isn't it? There's a problem, we're breaking the law, how do we fix it? Nehemiah says, oh, well, maybe if we just applied the Scriptures, that would fix it. Right? We do the same thing in our churches all the time. There's a problem, and we spend hours and hours or days and days trying to figure out how to fix the problem without anyone ever saying, hey, maybe we should just apply the Scripture to what we're doing. Maybe we should just apply the Scripture to the way we do ministry. Maybe we should just apply Scripture to the way we do leadership development. Right? There's really a simple answer, it's Scripture. But look, in verse 1, we're immediately struck by the internal nature of this problem. There's a famine, people are suffering, and the poor are being taken advantage of. And so it sort of raises the question, what good is this wall? Right? What's the purpose of this wall if, they, if we can't even be united as a people? So these cries begin to emerge from the people. And, and we trace the account of this, as we trace the account of this passage, uh, it, it will become evident that, that the rich and nobles were really being motivated by their own personal love for money, their own personal love for influence, for gain. And so you already see this contrast happening. There's already this contrast between, remember, the good of people and the glory of God contrasted with the love of money and the perseverance of self and status. It's already being contrasted for us right here in the very beginning of this chapter. So we notice in verse 1 that these ladies begin to weep the ladies are weeping. They're mourning. They're crying out. They're using more modern language. They're, they're freaking out a little bit because there's a famine. They're hungry. 
And hey, maybe there's a good lesson here. This is actually the first time we've actually heard from the wives directly in Nehemiah. Maybe there's a good lesson. I can say this since it's Father's Day. This is my gift to you, fathers. Ladies, just be strategic about when you freak out, right? It's not not the problem that they were worried, that they were concerned. It was the placement of it, right? Now, of course, I say that jokingly, but these ladies do have good reason to be upset. They have really good reason to be concerned. Their husbands are on the wall because their husbands are on the wall. Their husbands are neglecting their fields. Their fields are neglected. And so there's not a crop. Since there's not a crop, there's not a source of income. And so now the rich are taking advantage of the poor. And so rather than helping the poor, the rich are profiting off of the poor. And so these ladies begin to cry out. In fact, the language being used here is the same language used in Exodus when the people are beginning to cry out, when they're beginning to groan because of the oppression that they're facing at the hand of the Egyptians. And so Nehemiah hears the outcries of the people, and we see him begin to act uh, really in just a moment. But verses 2 through 5 really trace out the actual problems, don't they? Here's what we see. There's not adequate food because the men aren't able to pay attention to the fields. And so what they're doing is they're mortgaging their fields and their vineyards and their houses in order to get grain for their families because of the famine. So they're doing all this to feed their families, but because they're not able to generate income, they're not able to adequately pay their taxes. So they're also having to borrow money in order to pay their taxes. They can't pay back the money that they're borrowing, and so they're having to offer out their children to be slaves, their daughters to be servants in order to pay back the debt that was owed. Now to be fair, so we understand how this is biblical justice, this sort of thing is actually allowed in Deuteronomy chapter 7. It says that this type of thing is okay for seven years. But after seven years of, of this uh, sort, of, sort of sending your children to be the servants of whoever you owe money to, the debt has to be forgiven. One way or the other, it has to be forgiven. Now, we've not reached this seven-year seven time frame yet, but another very important caveat here is that they must be treated well. And it seems from the context that this is not happening. It's obvious from the context this isn't happening. They're being mistreated. They're being taken advantage of. And so the rich have subjected the people to this endless cycle of poverty in which they cannot break. And it's placed the people in a position of weakness and given the rich power and authority over them. Now keep in mind, this is happening among God's people. This isn't happening among the pagans. This isn't happening among the people that don't know God's law. This is God's people who are violating God's law because of their own greed. And so don't think it's impossible for us not to fall into the same sorts of traps that are set by Satan. And you really get a sense here of the weight of the problem in verse 5. Notice that phrase towards the end of the verse. Neither is it in our power to redeem them. They're crying out and they're saying, man, we can't do anything about it. There is absolutely nothing we can do. We're starving. We're poor. Our children are in slavery to our brothers. And we can't do anything. We have no power. We have no ability to make this right. I think it should suffice to say the people are crushed. And they're not crushed because of the external conflict. They're crushed because of the internal conflict. So keep in mind here, It's not just that the rich are breaking the law, because as it seems that they're mistreating the people, but they're also breaking the spirit of the law, aren't they? What they should have been doing is recognizing the hurt and the desperate circumstances that they were in, and instead of asking how can we take advantage of these people to increase our wealth, they should have been asking how can we use our wealth to strengthen the people and accomplish the task at hand. And so the result is the people are crushed. There's this total discord. Everyone has become distracted. This is the important part, church. Everyone has become distracted from the mission. Do you see that? The mission is no longer their concern. Their own health. Their hungry bellies for the poor. Their rich bank accounts for the nobles have become their concern. So what we had just seen In the previous chapters, incredible success. 
Man, they're building this wall in an incredible amount of time. All of a sudden, even in spite of all of that success, because the internal problems, because Satan had created internal problems with these internal relationships, all of a sudden the mission is of no concern and the people are threatened. It happens that quickly. This is a classic case of disunity, church. And what we see in this discord is a really good reminder that Satan often works along the lines of relational conflict. Can I say that again? Satan often works along the lines of relational conflict. Hear me out. Satan does not just work through acts of terrorism. He does work through acts of terrorism. But it's not just acts of terrorism. It's oftentimes that he grieves the spirit towards anger and towards bitterness, and in this case, injustice. And so Satan has created this kind of discord. Very important principle. There's a lot of important principles this morning. If Satan can get God's people fighting among themselves, he will get their eye off of the mission. You might have experienced this. I've experienced this on a number of occasions among God's people. And if He can get us fighting among ourselves, then He can get our eye off of the mission. This is what Satan wants. Disunity in our internal relationships. External pressure rarely has any success at stopping the church. Read the book of Acts. But yet there is testimony after testimony after testimony of churches who have closed their doors because they were unable or unwilling to address the internal conflict. And they allowed Satan to continue to sow disunity among them. It's exactly what's happening here. Now, I've alluded to some of the reasons for this, but let's really drill down on a couple of the primary reasons that this is happening among the people. First, I've already said it, they failed to apply the Scriptures. They failed to apply the Scriptures to the, to the problem. The problem was there was a lot of work to be done and the fields weren't being taken care of. If they would have properly applied the Scriptures, there would have been no room for disunity. But they improperly applied the Scriptures. But second, there's this general lack of love among the people. And so they're, they're charging interest, which breaks the law given in Deuteronomy 15, and they're failing to love their neighbor as themselves. They're not applying the Scripture to the problem. So this is how disunity happens. Friends, this is how disunity happens in your home. It's how disunity happens in a church. It's how disunity happens wherever there are Christians gathered together. Listen to me. When you say my tradition is more important than the Bible, or my experience is more important than the Bible, or my fleshly desires are more important than the Bible, when you put the Bible under all of those things or any of those things, you lose any common reference point of authority. I was blessed with a very godly father. My father is not my authority on how I am to be a father. This is my authority. My father has established for me a very good tradition of fatherhood. That tradition is not my authority. This is my authority. So this applies in the home, it applies in the church, it applies in all aspects of life when we start thinking about these things. They have placed biblical authority, they have placed biblical authority underneath these other things, and disunity happens. Listen, when you say, I don't care what the Bible says, I'm going to do X, Y, or Z, it's very simple. You're on a path to destruction. I don't care what the Bible says. I think I should do this. I don't care what the Bible says. I think I should uh, be a husband like this or a, a wife like this. I don't care what the Bible says. I think I should raise my children like this. I don't care what the Bible says. I think we should do this in the church. When you do that, you are on a path to destruction because your experience, your tradition, and your preferences are not your authority. This world is broken because we've placed authority in everything else but the Bible. And our homes will be broken because we place our authority everywhere else but the Bible. And our churches will be broken if we place our authority anywhere else but the Bible. Listen, what a lot of people want to do is make their own desires equal to the Bible. And we've talked about this a lot in Nehemiah. We've talked about it a lot in the Gospel of John because it's been a recurring theme throughout all of history. Because friends, can we just be honest with one another? This is a safe place. 
We are a prideful people, aren't we? And too often times, the thing, the person that we love more than anyone else is me, isn't it? It's ourself. And even though we've been saved by the blood of Jesus and, and we're being conformed into His image, we still struggle with the flesh sometimes, don't we? And that flesh begs us to love the flesh. And so we very easily fall into this. But I want you to hear this. We can never substitute personal preferences for biblical references. We can't allow it to happen. You cannot substitute your personal preference for your biblical reference. They're not the same. These people have all of this text in Deuteronomy and all of these other places telling them, you can't do what you're doing. And yet they've put their preferences over these scriptural references. And it doesn't just happen in the book of Nehemiah. It doesn't just happen in the Old Testament. It happens in the New Testament also. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the rich are taking advantage of the poor when it comes to the Lord's Supper. They're, they're taking the Lord's Supper in the context of a meal. And because the rich are able to get there early, they're having all the good food and the wine before the poor can get there. They're doing exactly what they've been told not to do because they have placed themselves... They've placed their own preferences above their scriptural references. The same thing happens in John chapter 2. There's partiality being shown to the rich, right? Because they put their personal preferences, they've put the bank account of the church ahead of what scripture has commanded them to do. But this leads us to verses 6 through 13. And here we really begin to see the steps of justice that Nehemiah took. And I think this is so important for us this morning. The way Nehemiah brings accountability back to the people has a lot for us to, to, to draw from, a lot for us to learn from. It's very instructive for anyone who is dealing with any kind of conflict, any kind of disunity, whether it's in the home, in the workplace, in relationships, in the church, whatever the case may be. It's very, it's very instructive for disunity in the present. And so I want you to see a couple of the things that happens here. Number one, there is a righteous indignation. There is a righteous indignation. Nehemiah is not indifferent to the cries of the weak, is he? He hears the cries of these wives and he's not indifferent to it. He doesn't brush it to the side. He doesn't ignore it. He hears these cries. He sees the pain. And he has this righteous indignation. Look at verse 6. I was very angry. How many of y'all are like, hey, I'm good at this part, preacher? <laughs> I got this part. I, I, can get, I can get angry. I got no problems getting angry. Right? We, we feel like we're pretty good at this one. Right? Nehemiah is not passive. Let me put it this way. Nehemiah is, in, is emotional, isn't he? Anger is an emotion. And we've talked a lot about emotions before. And, and we can't always trust their emotions. But, but good leaders have good emotions. They're able to control those emotions, as we'll see. They have healthy biblical emotions. Like any good leader, he has great joy when there is unity and he has great grief when there is not. It's just like Paul said to the church in Philippi in Philippians 2, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Paul said to the church in Philippi, my joy is complete when you're of the same mind, when you're unified. That's what happens with good leaders. That's what makes our joy complete. Whether you're leading in the home, whether you're, whether you're leading in a workplace, whether you're leading in a church context or a ministry context, our joy should be complete when we are of the same mind and the same mission. And so Nehemiah is righteously indignant. Now, of course, we have to be careful about this emotion, don't we? This emotion of, of anger. Because if we're honest, many times our anger is not righteous. Now it's obviously possible to have a righteous anger. The Bible talks about it on multiple occasions. But let's be honest, it is very, very difficult. Now the reason is, most of the time, our anger, this goes back to what I said just a moment ago, our anger is the result of something uh, threatening our preferences, our power, our greed, or our position. I had a conversation with a guy one time at the previous church I was pastoring and he was, uh, he was angry about something that had happened. Um, it was not a righteous anger, it was just anger. 
And I asked him, I said, you're obviously very passionately angry about this. We disagree over it. I said, when was the last time you got this angry over your neighbor across the street who is lost? When was the last time you got this angry about the fact that there is little to no Christian influence in our school systems? And he had no answer. You see, righteous indignation happens when our heart breaks for the same things that break God's heart. And what breaks God's heart most is the destruction and the distortion of His image in the people that He created. And that's why He sent His Son Jesus. That His image might be restored. That our relationship with Him might be restored. We could put it this way in the context of what we're studying here in Nehemiah, because, because we're seeing an example of righteous anger in Nehemiah. We can put it this way, righteous anger only happens when we, when we see something threatening the good of people and the glory of God. That's righteous anger. When something threatens the good of people and the glory of God. Not when something threatens Brent's ideas. Not when something threatens Brent's well-being. But when something threatens the good of people and most importantly, the glory of God. That is when righteous anger can occur. Right? When the problem is threatening both of those things. And in this case, in Nehemiah, it is threatening both of these things. And so Nehemiah's anger is righteous. But look at verse 7. We see the second step. Careful contemplation. Nehemiah takes time to stop. He said in the version of our text this morning, verse 7, I consulted with myself. I took time to contemplate. See, this is oftentimes where righteous indignation goes awry. Because sometimes our indignation, our anger, is actually righteous anger. But the problem is, the way we, uh, the way we follow up on that anger is not righteous. It is not biblical. We step into an unrighteous anger. See, there are certainly times when you might not be sinning in your anger but you may be sinning in your response to your anger. And so before Nehemiah responds, he essentially says, I just took counsel with myself. Some of us should probably make that our life verse. <laughs> in traffic, I'm just going to stop and take counsel with myself. When I'm watching the news, I just need to stop and take counsel with myself. What does this mean? Nehemiah just chilled out for a minute. He just took a deep breath. He just stepped back. He processed what was making him angry. He prayed through what was making him angry. And then he acted. He didn't say, oh, I'm angry and I'm going to act instantly. Right? means he just chilled out for a little bit. He got his emotions under control. What is it that the Proverbs say? If you can control your anger, you're greater than one who takes a city. Nehemiah is a great leader because he can control himself. And so let me say very directly, if you can't control yourself, you can't lead. Fathers, don't miss that this morning. Your children, from birth, allegedly the rest of their life, I don't know, I've only got some that are young, will do things, I can tell you they do it at a very early age, that will make you righteously angry. They will. But the key isn't just having a righteous anger against your children's disobedience. It's being able to control that anger and being able to correct them in a way that is restorative and not just punitive. You have an obligation to lead your children to Christ. And righteous anger mixed with unrighteous behavior will not lead them to Christ but away from Christ. If you can't control your emotions, I was talking to the fathers there, but this goes for anyone. Do not allow yourself to be in a position of leadership anywhere. Blue-collar work, white-collar work. If you're already in the home and you're already married, man, you've got to get it figured out. You've got to get this right. You've got to get your priorities straight. It's got to be the good of people and the glory of God. And when you get those things figured out, you'll be in a position to execute biblical justice, to restore those who have made you angry. 
to hold accountable those who have made you angry, whether it's your kids or a friend or someone else. Now, listen, what, what we would call this today is it applies to us just very practically, very personally in our lives. This sort of taking a step back. We might also say this is just time to preach the gospel to yourself. When you're righteously angry, when something makes you angry, before you do anything else, preach the gospel to yourself. When you're in a situation that brings about indignation, stop and consider just for a few moments. Stop and just ponder the grace of God in your own life. Consider your own need for repentance. Examine your own heart. Preach the gospel to yourself. Then you'll be in a position to respond. Do what James said. What did he say? Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to what? Anger. He would go on and say, For the anger of man does not, doesn't get any more clear than that, does it? Does not produce the righteousness of God. He says instead that we ought to do this. Put away all filthiness and wickedness and receive, listen, with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. This is how we respond. What do you do when you get angry? You get before the Word. And you get meek. And you get humble. And you take it in. And you consider it in the light of Scripture and the grace of God extended towards you. And then you respond. Now again, just talking to men, it's not really in our nature to be meek and humble sometimes, is it? But God says the way you respond to anger, the way you respond to righteous anger is you get yourself meek and you humble yourself under the Word of God. Now there may be an underlying problem there to begin with that you don't ever get meek and humble before the Word of God in the good times, in the happy times, or in the angry times. If you're not doing it in the good times, you're probably not going to do it in the angry times. Right, we talked a couple weeks ago about how you better, we talked about like opposition and stuff from the outside. You better be crystal, crystal clear before you oppose something that people believe God is doing that it is something that God is not doing before you oppose it. Right, there's serious warnings about opposing the work of God in the book of Nehemiah. But you also ought to get very serious and be very concerned about your unwillingness to humble yourself under the authority of God's Word, to remind yourself of God's grace extended towards you when you didn't deserve it, to recognize all of the areas in your life that need repentance before you unleash what you consider righteous anger on someone else. It's very clear. And this leads us to this third step, doesn't it? That we see direct confrontation. I've made jokes about Nehemiah being Baptist. <clears throat> when you get to Nehemiah chapter 5, you start to wonder if he's actually Baptist. Because of this direct confrontation, Nehemiah doesn't go tell 50 people about the problem first, does he? Come on now, we're Baptist. We know how this works. There's a problem and we tell everybody else about the problem before we tell the person that we have a problem with about the problem. Nehemiah doesn't do that. He doesn't go around talking to everyone about the problem. There's no manipulation. There's no gamesmanship. I, everybody hold on to your seats. I'm just going to say it because I've said plenty else this morning. No passive-aggressive social media post about it. There's no subtexting. There's no subtweeting. Some of y'all don't even know what that is, but that's okay. He goes directly to the person. It's very Matthew 18 of Nehemiah, isn't it? When offended, go straight to the person. That's what we see in the next sentence in verse 7. He brings the charges directly against the nobles and the officials. He's very clear <clears throat> with the charges. He charges them with exacting interest from their brothers. And you see, this is exactly what makes this biblical justice because he has a biblical warrant. It's not that they've broken Nehemiah's preferences or Nehemiah's rules or Nehemiah's personal principles, but they have broken God's Word. Now, we very clearly realize Nehemiah has not gotten very far with this, and so he shows us this fourth step. It's this public explanation. Again, very Matthew 18. If not successful with the direct offender, then you take it before the group. He says, I held a great assembly with them. Listen, this is, why, this is one of the reasons I love Nehemiah. Right? There's no playing around. Nehemiah is truly about the business of God's Word. He doesn't have time to play silly games. He doesn't have time to make social media posts. He doesn't have time to go to 50 other people because there is a mission that God has given him and the people have to be about the mission of God's Word and so he's going to be about the business of God's Word. He gets straight to it. He calls the people together. 
He says, you are wrong and we're going to fix this today because we're going to finish the wall. We're going to finish the mission that God has given us. And so Nehemiah gives this speech and he's saying, essentially, guys, do you realize how crazy this is? We have a history of being enslaved by other people. And now you're enslaving one another. It's absolutely crazy, slavery among God's people. Those who know freedom should be the people fighting for freedom. And can I just say, only true freedom is found in Christ Jesus. I'm thankful to be in the United States of America. But my eternal freedom is not in any way attached to the United States of America. But my eternal freedom is in every way attached to the person and the work of Christ. It doesn't matter if I'm American or a Canadian or an Iranian. I am no more free or no less free than the next slave to sin without Christ. Nehemiah gets it. Notice at the very end of verse 8, Nehemiah is essentially saying they were silent. They didn't have any words to respond. (laughs) So he's called them out. He's went directly to them. Now there's this public explanation, and at this point the nobles are speechless. They've got no response. He has held out before them the Word of God. He has charged them with breaking the Word of God, and now they can say nothing. Nehemiah goes on in verse 9 to talk about walking in the fear of the Lord before their enemies. He's he's challenging them. He's accusing them of damaging the witness of God's people. And so you see what happens here. When there is division among God's people, it damages our witness to a watching world. It's another reason why our unity is so important. When there's disunity in here, it damages our witness to everyone who is out there. And so here in this text you have the Ammonites, the Ashadites, the Termites. <laughs> right? you got all of these ites that are just peering over the wall in at God's people. They're looking at this peculiar people, this people that's supposed to be called out by God. And you know what they're saying? They're just like us. There's nothing distinct. There's nothing unique about them. Because all they see is God's people doing the very same thing that they were doing. The rich were oppressing the poor. Now Nehemiah ends his speech there, but he doesn't stop there. Notice this last piece of his step of justice. There's a holy restoration. There's a holy restoration. Verse 10, notice notice this. This is so, so important. We're We're going to land our plane here this morning. I want you to notice who the first one to repent is. Leaders, I want you to notice who the first one to repent is. Whether you're a leader in a home, leader in the workplace, or a leader in the church. The first one to repent is not the nobles. The first one to repent is Nehemiah. Good leaders lead in repentance. Let me say it again. Good leaders lead in repentance. Whether it's your children in your home, whether it's the people in your workplace, whether it's the people in your church, wherever you may have leadership responsibilities, men or women, good leaders lead in repentance. Nehemiah had preached this gospel to himself. And so Nehemiah was not picking, just picking the speck out of his brother's eye and ignoring the log in his own eye. Nehemiah says, you men need to repent because you have committed sin against God. You have broken His law and you need to repent. Let me show you how to repent as I repent myself. He's demonstrating that it's not time for loans. This is a time for gifts. It's not a time to take advantage of our brothers and sisters. It is a time for us to be able to to serve our brothers and sisters. And so Nehemiah says, let me be the first one to say I will serve. We're going to see how he actually lives this out next week. He doesn't just call on them to stop what they're doing. He calls on them to restore all that they've taken. When it comes to repentance, understand it's not just an admission of wrongdoing, but it's restitution. It's making the thing right that was wrong. That's what happens in verse 11. Now, of course, we can imagine a fight breaking out at this point, right? But it doesn't. The nobles are willing to, to do what Nehemiah is calling them to do because God is at work among them. 
They respond humbly because the stage has been set, the process has been biblical, and now they're ready to agree to restore their brothers and sisters. And so Nehemiah makes it official. He brings out the priest. They make this covenant. And then he even gives this visual illustration. He shakes out the folds of his garment. He, he empties out his pockets, if, he will, if you will. And he says, so shall God shake out from the fold of his blessing if you do not keep this promise. This ought to be a stern word of warning to anyone in the church. If we can't get on board with God's mission... Nehemiah was righteous in his prayer that those who were unwilling to get on board and remain selfish be shook out of the folds of God's grace. This isn't because Nehemiah is a mean person. It's not even, it doesn't have anything to do with Nehemiah's authority at all. This is an example of how serious God is about his mission. I promise you, it's way more serious than any of us are. He is serious about accomplishing his work. And so church, the invitation to us is simply this. Let's do justice for the good of others and the glory of God. Let's be leaders who lead in repentance. Let's be leaders who have righteous anger about the things that make God angry, but then, uh, then, then dispense justice the way God would have us dispense justice. Listen, we, when we get off mission... We have to be able to hear the outcry of those who are suffering as a result of, fa- of our failure to fulfill the mission that God has given us. And it cannot drive us to disunity, but it must drive us to our knees and it must drive us to repentance. And we must stand from our repentance in a holy commitment and holy restoration to God's Word and obedience to His call on our lives. Now as we land this plane right here, we finish this chapter next week. Nehemiah is seeking to correct the injustice of the nobles. I hope that each of us are reminded of our own injustice. We learn the very beginning of the Bible. Read Genesis 1, 2, and 3. All things were made perfect, and very quickly, all things went awry. And it's because of sin that has eternally separated every single one of us from God. We were created in the Imago Dei. That's the image of God. And we have been eternally separated because we are born sinful. You know why there's brokenness in your life? Because you were literally born broken. And the only way to pick up the pieces is not to figure out what step, uh, what, what, what wall I can build next, not to figure out what good thing I can do next. The only way for restoration, for rebuilding, for revitalization to happen in my life and your life is for us to take the broken pieces and hold them up before Jesus and say, Jesus, you are the answer to our brokenness. We need to become angry about the sin in our own lives. Righteously angry. And then respond in the only righteous way we can respond. Falling before our Father in heaven and saying, God, forgive me of my sin and restore me to the image of your Son, Jesus.